0: Hey, welcome to the African Podcast. On today's episode, we feature a conversation between me, Mike Imhenna, and Professor Rashad Kasaba. Rashad lives in Seattle and he's a professor at University of Washington. He focuses on Ottoman history. Today's conversation was originally recorded on October 13th. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome everyone. My name is Mike Imhenna. Thanks so much for joining. I am honored to welcome our special guest, uh, Professor Rashad Kasaba. Um, Professor Kassaba is an expert in the history and the politics of the Middle East and has taught undergraduate and graduate students at the University of Washington Jackson School of International Studies for over 30 years, where he also served as a school's director for 10 years. Professor Kassaba is also the recipient of the UW Distinguished Teaching Award. From 2017 to 2019, uh, Professor Kassaba served as a president of the Association of Professional Schools of International Affairs. He's currently a board member of MESA, Middle East Studies Association of North America. He holds a PhD and an MA in sociology. His books include The Movable Empire, The Ottoman Empire and the World Economy, and Rethinking modern, uh, Modernity and National Identity in Turkey. He's currently researching the role of education in the formation of modern Turkish identity in the 20th century. Um, Professor Kasaba or Rashad, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Um, you know, I think a good first question uh, would be, um, you're Turkish, you grew up in, uh, in modern day Turkey, and um, you're, you're studying, uh, you know, you're studying the history of, uh, of sort of Turkish politics and the history of the Ottoman Empire. Um, but you study sociology. Um, what, what drew you into sociology? And were you always expecting to sort of study the history of the Ottoman Empire? Or was that a happy accident?
1: <laughs> Something in between. Uh, well, uh, first of all, I'm really impressed with uh, what you've been doing uh, in this network. It's just really a tremendous uh, source uh, for uh, for all of us now. So thank you. And thank you for allowing me to be a part of it. Oh, um, so um, my, uh, you know, uh, how I came to do what I do and how I do uh, has a lot to do with uh, the time that I grew up in Turkey. I'm not quite the 1960s generation, but uh, came right after that. And those were very, really tumultuous times in Turkey. And those of us uh, who were in high school and uh, college in Turkey at the time, uh, couldn't but be affected by what was going on around us. I mean, it generated uh, the the you know the social movements, student movements, um, the political uncertainty, uh, repeated military interventions. I mean, all those things affected our lives and uh, invariably uh, led us to ask all kinds of questions. Uh, many of my co- uh, friends at the time. Uh, who were interested in what was going on around them uh, started to ask questions uh, why these things are happening and what are the what is the best way of understanding these and what can we do Uh, but of course it wasn't really at the time it was it was more of a curiosity Um, the route to really take this as a um, as a vocation as academic career uh, was a bit more um, wasn't exactly planned. um, Because uh, it wasn't really, uh, for for our generation at the time, it wasn't something that was done very commonly. I mean, we were thinking about these things, but we thought that the way to deal with them was to learn about them and to learn about, um, you know, the background, the economics, etc. But the plan was basically to go and become a professional and hopefully make a contribution like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I was uh, in uh, at university in Turkey at the Middle East University, I was fortunate to have a number of uh, teachers uh, who were young and uh, had come uh, from Europe and from the United States. And they came with all kinds of new ways of thinking about society, history, and understanding these social dynamics. And once we were exposed Uh, to these new ways of thinking, um, I and several of my friends uh, became very clear that there was more to do in terms of learning about this. So the next step was to uh, to go on uh, beyond undergraduate and get a graduate degree. Um, And the connection, uh, when I think about it at the time, it could have been any kind of social science because uh, we thought there are economics to to understand, history, sociology, anthropology. It just Mm -hmm. happened that one of my teachers in Turkey had good connections with uh, what was then a really an up-and-coming school of thought in historical sociology. Uh, led by uh, Professor Emmanuel Wallerstein, who had just started a center uh, at the State University of New York at Binghamton at the time. Now it's called Binghamton University. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and that was a more or less a direct route from Ankara uh, in Turkey to Binghamton, New York into sociology. Um, it wasn't so the program that I was in and I, got, I ended up getting my degree in, Uh, was not really strictly a traditional kind of a sociology department. It was, as I said, very historical in its orientation. And we were encouraged to learn foreign languages and do archival work and and really think about things um, uh, in a historical manner. I would just say one more thing about uh, that school of thought, uh, which shaped a lot of my early work and my first book, Uh, really posed questions about places like Turkey uh, from a a world historical context. So the question at the time became not necessarily uh, Turkey or Brazil or Argentina or South Africa or uh, the Caribbean, India being developed, underdeveloped. Um, The question became, um, what was the place of these countries and regions in the world, and what was it about the global dynamics uh, that really conditioned uh, the social structures uh, in these places? So it wasn't really uh, thinking about these countries in a continuum being uh, underdeveloped to develop, but it was thinking about them within a part of a global network. So uh, yeah. so that really, uh, it is historical, but there are big historical questions that couldn't really necessarily be asked and answered strictly from my only historical perspective. So it was a broad social science perspective that I, I had at the time.
0: Yeah. So, um, two questions. One um, is there is it possible for you to speak louder or uh, be a little closer to the mic? Because in the in the Um, okay, perfect. Um, The real question is um, if I can sort of zoom by back to your um, younger self when you're when you're sort of starting to study in Turkey. And this is a question I've been meaning to ask somebody like you. Did you think you were growing up in the, the former Ottoman Empire? It, was that a, a sort of a part of the psyche that you had? That And a second part, as somebody who's well-traveled, do you feel like when you travel around, it's clear to you this used to be the Ottoman Empire when you go to, you know, Lebanon or you go to Egypt or you go um through Iraq or places, or, uh, Algeria doesn't matter. where you think, yeah, this is very clearly formerly the Ottoman Empire. Was that a framework that you had growing up as you were an academic, as you were becoming a budding academic? And is it still the framework?
1: Uh, very, uh, this is very interesting. I mean, the first question is, um, it is uh, well. The answer is uh, not necessarily. In other words, when we were growing up. Uh, mm-hmm. The Ottoman Empire uh, was uh, in the background somewhere, but I think the whole uh, not I think I know the whole education and the way we were brought up uh, we were brought up with the understanding that uh, this was something that we left behind yeah and uh, it 's a good thing that we left behind because it was something that really constrained uh, uh, what was now what was then being sort of as a Turkish society. So it wasn't really, we weren't necessarily encouraged to think about uh, Turkey in those kinds of historical terms. Uh, and if we were, uh, we were encouraged to think about it as something that was really um, almost like a 600-year accident in the in the longer term, broader history of, of Turks as such. Yeah. So um, breaking that actually really necessitated really uh, leaving Turkey and looking at this from a distance. And it is really, I always say this to um, to my students, uh, to my friends, Uh, we really had to really leave Turkey to understand Turkey in a, a, um, you know, in a thorough kind of way. So the Ottoman Empire came, so the, um, uh, and now as as I travel uh, former uh, parts of the Ottoman Empire, yes, I think there are um, uh, a lot of things that I can see, and specifically because I, in Turkey, I am from Antakya, uh, which of course has a this specific history of uh, you know, being part of the Syrian mandate longer uh, than the rest of the country, but culturally, historically, uh, very much uh, linked uh, to what is now Syria and even further in the Arab world. Uh, so there is, uh, there, is a, there, is, there is that kind of familiarity for sure. But when we were growing up, Um, really, I think it would be very. I mean, we knew and there were certain parts of the Ottoman Empire that we were supposed to be proud of, but overall, uh, the notion was that it is something that is best sort of left behind. And and as I'm sure you know, and a lot of the uh, listeners know too, um, the the most important part of this kind of break, of course, was uh, was changing the alphabet changing the language and not really having access uh to um uh the sources incredible amount of historical sources that are in the archives uh and that that was also a very important barrier so um that that is i think uh i don't even know um perhaps uh some of the countries that went to, through uh, revolutions in the 20th century, you may think about them in similar ways, but I mm-hmm. don't really know any other country, uh, I can't think of any other country uh, that really instituted that kind of a radical break with its very recent history. So, Yeah. Um, yes.
0: It's really interesting because like even the, okay, so the, the, the one of the books I have up on the, on the page here in 1997 published, Rethinking Modernity and National Identity in uh, Turkey. It also, it almost suggests this like negative space, right? As if it's this, uh, this map and there's this positive space. That's the focus of the book, uh, rethinking this particular national identity without much, uh, without much time spent, uh, with the rethinking of the all the other places, uh, national identities, which brings me to something yes. that we were talking about beforehand, which is even the the complex nature of the phrase national identity, um, and you know, your this later work that I, I really want to talk about, um, uh, a, a movable empire. I, if it's okay with you, do you mind if I just read th- this this clip? Oh. Um, So you say, furthermore, rather than figuring solely as a carriers of dissent, in many instances, migratory and nomadic groups actually mediated and imposed the will of the imperial center. It was particularly intriguing that the economic, political and social changes that the empire underwent in its long history, roughly 1300 to 1922. And the Ottoman states repeated attempts to settle the tribes seem not to have affected the position and the prominence of tribal and other migratory groups groups. Tens of thousands of tribes, some encompassing thousands of people and animals moved across great distances, cross-cutting the Ottoman Empire, which at one point extended from Algeria in the west to the Iranian border in the east and from Crimea in the north to the Indian Ocean in the south. So this book, A Movable Empire, Ottoman Nomads, Migrants and Refugees, I think, to me, helps, um, helps me with this idea of like what What a nation is, what a national identity might be, and the the fluidity with which people cross those lines, particularly when an empire is so vast and it's in many ways borderless, and so people are sort of moving around. Um, My question is what surprised you about um, what in the process of writing this book? and what did it uh, sort of? What did it force you to reimagine or rewrite in your head when compared to the rest of what you knew about Turkey and what you knew about the Ottoman Empire? Because it seems to be uh, a a book that may have a f- may be filled with surprises. Yeah.
1: Well, <clears throat> uh, yes. I, um, you know, uh, the very uh, kind of uh, I don't know. we made the biggest conclusion I must say. Um, uh, after working on this book and thinking about it uh, is the reversal of this very common assumption that shapes uh, our thinking today and not only our thinking but of course the entire sort of policy making in the world, in Europe, in the United States, all over the world. And that is the assumption that stasis, so the stability or stationary state of people Living in fixed places with fixed identities is the normal uh, normal state of things. So uh, movement then becomes something that is abnormal. Uh, mm-hmm. It happens when it happens. It should be controlled. It, could, it should be stopped. It should be avoided. And, uh, and then people who move uh, consequently are abnormal people. So this is really uh, when you look at history uh, in a longish-term perspective, and that actually, I must say, that's also the result of my earlier training and this historical sociology, looking at these dynamics uh, from a long-term perspective, you realize that actually stability, uh, creating these institutions and borders and identities and passports, Uh, is uh, these are all quite recent. Really, it is something that grew and became uh, widespread in the 19th century. And in this relatively short period of time, um, this kind of framework uh, has really captured uh, not only our imagination, but also uh, our thinking about ourselves, about our world, and about other people. So I think breaking that and seeing this kind of nations are not normal. They're not really a manifestation of some uh, eternal truth about a community of people. But they are uh, not only constructed, they're constructed with very specific political um, goals in mind. I think really uh, allows us to have much more of a dynamic understanding of our world. Now, I don't really mean to say, uh, I don't mean to deny the fact that people who are now, um, you know, in a state of uh migration or refugees, um, that they are not vulnerable, uh, that they not they, they need, they they feel vulnerable, they need to be protected, and I fully understand why, um, why the desire to have a safe place to call home is something that everybody deserves and needs as the reality of our world but i don't think this is uh, from a historical perspective uh, i really fully believe that a world that insists universally on on uh, on, uh, on, uh, staying in one place within uh, strict borders beyond walls uh, a world like that i think ends up really making Uh, people a lot poorer uh, than uh, they can otherwise be. And I think that is really perhaps one observation uh, that comes out of this book uh, that I think um, is applicable to other contexts uh, as well.
0: So um, the idea of stasis, so if you can sort of walk us through a little bit of the nature of the movement so first of all were the were the populations that were moving throughout this 600 year period always the same types of populations or was it the cyclical thing where certain uh, populations moved to new centers and ceased movement and then yeah. behind them another group started moving or was it there were stationary groups and, mo- and moving groups
1: yeah I think it is. uh, It's more the latter. Uh, It's a dynamic process. Um, So um, uh, There are uh, sort of if you look at it over the long long term perspective and um, you know tribes uh, tribal movements of all kinds. uh, This is a dynamic movement and always it kind of occurs within the relationship between urban and rural areas of uh, spaces out of an empire is a large space obviously but the same thing obviously you can you can observe in other um, uh, other places. So uh, it is a dynamic relationship between uh, urban and rural areas and historically urban areas uh, before nation states became the norm in terms of organization of of communities in the world, urban areas always existed uh, in their kind of desire as a result of their desire to control rural areas. Uh, So that kind of dynamic is a power relationship. And these uh, mobile mobile groups, uh, tribes, etc., provide that connection. Uh, so it is a, it is a dynamism that's a dynamic kind of originates from rural, rural areas and eventually conflicts uh, uh, with urban areas. And oftentimes, uh, the urban areas uh, really uh, take over and really uh, quote unquote sedentarize and civilize. Uh, the uh, the tribal groups and mobile groups, but it's so it's a dynamic, and I, one of the best yeah. sort of explanations of this, of course, comes from Ibn al-Dun as a North African. Yeah. Uh, in many ways, I think uh, could be think- could be thought about one of the very first historical sociologists looking at these long-term uh, historical uh, movements to explain. And uh, what was going on at his time in his society. was very much applicable uh, at, uh, to our times too.
0: Yeah. So you you write, you say, um, in, in response to Ibn Khaldun, you say, Ibn Khaldun described tribes, tribes as entities bonded by strong feelings of solidarity based mm-hmm. on lineage. The closeness of the ties that gave the tribes their unity also made them cohesive and powerful. As such, tribes were more effective than sedentary emper- empires in fighting and spreading their influence. Can you give yeah. an example of what that might look like? Which tribes were more successful than these sort of sedentary, empirical forces? Um, what what examples sort of reinforce that point?
1: Um, you know, um, there are... Um, uh, so. Uh, when, I, when we talk about tribes as being mm. these uh, powerful, cohesive entities, uh, what, I was, uh, what I was referring to is is uh, not to really idealize these structures as really one mm. large family. Uh, they're really uh, well-established power relations that organize these communities. For our time, actually, the best really example uh, without going into specific tribes uh, the um, the long term um, sort of existence uh, of Kurdish communities uh, in uh, eastern southeastern Turkey and parts of um, you know Uh, the Arab world and in Iran, uh, is a very good example, because if you think about it, you are talking about a community that has never had a um, a, a state in the modern sense of the world. Uh, And there are a lot of reasons for that, but despite that, this is a community that uh, spread across this geography has somehow maintained their uh, core identity. And and I think that is a very interesting uh, question uh, yeah. that we should think about. That's a very good example, actually, that really contrasts this, what we call the normality. But at the same time, of course, the the, the power of the idea of a nation and a state is so strong uh, that they, um, you know, inevitably, of course, this, uh, this has come to clash. Uh, yeah, in the, in the in
0: the example of the Kurds it's almost like they they already have national identities without the statehood and those those are starting to clash, right?
1: Well, it is. Yes, I think that's part of It is definitely that. Yeah. Uh and you can think about that as a in, in a in, in a way uh in reaction to the very strong national uh sort of policies of of uh, of subjugation or or making them more sedentary etc over many many years. Uh, but despite that i think what really uh uh the in, in the internal kind of dynamics of this uh is is extremely um uh, it's very different very distinct and i think it is very um very different uh from from the law
0: i'm curious um and just from your perspective you know like i i was always uh, very fascinated by the Hejaz railway as yes um, Abdul Hamid's, uh, Abdul Hamid II's, you know, big national project to sort of unify uh, this dying sort of dying uh, empire and sort of rebrand it as the the Muslim Empire, right? Um, yes. In in the places in sort of the Levant and Saudi Arabia and um, uh, you know Jordan, Iraq. Um, what are the legacies of the Ottoman Empire that still sort of are plain faced in front of you? As somebody who studies the, this empire and, this, and that while it was alive and while in um, it's sort of the ashes of the empire, what are the, the legacies of that, uh, that influence that you still see as you travel around?
1: Uh, you know, I think uh, uh, th- there is uh, a certain element of sort of, uh, you know, the um, the symbols uh, of of empire, and that really reflects itself in terms of uh, some laws and architecture, some buildings, and mm-hmm. and, and you know, elements of this uh, uh, the Hijaz Railway you mentioned. Uh, because it's really uh, 19th century Abu Hamid's period was also uh, a period when, uh, as an empire, uh, there were a lot of things that were going on that tried to replicate what was going on in some of the new budding nation states in Europe in terms of centralization and control and having more of a, uh, you know, more of a connection, especially with the Arab world in the Middle East. So. So I think that uh, spatial kind of, you know, similarities, uh, uh, I think, is is really, uh, is important. Um, But I think also, um, uh, for the, uh, despite that period, you know, the 19th century centralization, despite that period, one of the interesting, very interesting things about the Ottoman Empire is that uh, it is not like uh, the roman empire in a way i mean when you um, when you go across the sort of the roman empire uh what was the roman empire mm-hmm. uh, there are some things that you recognize everywhere, the the highways, the roads, et cetera, columns and buildings. So there is this kind of uh, uh, almost, uh, you know, continuing uh, in a way decentralization that really allows a lot of local practices and cultures and languages to continue, but at the same time uh, somehow maintaining through the local power structures by co-opting the local power structures into a center, uh, maintaining or keeping preserving this empire for that very long period of time. So that kind of pull and push, I think, is is, is important to keep in mind. So uh, even though there are definitely traces and there are definitely similarities that you can recognize in the Balkans, especially mm-hmm. in the Middle East the Arab world. Uh, it, but uh, unlike, uh, unlike, as I said, some of the earlier empires, this is also an empire that t- managed to stay somewhat, somewhat decentralized until the very end. Um, so I think that is, that makes it, uh, you know, one result of this has been until recently, and I would say really um, the last maybe 20 years or so, uh, in a way it's still continuous. There has been an um, 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 unspoken division of labor uh, between, let's say, uh, the Balkan historians of the Ottoman Empire, Arab historians of the Ottoman Empire, and I guess, for one of a better word, the Turkish historians of the Ottoman Empire. So, um, so it was really uh, that you could actually do a history of the Ottoman Empire. By only looking at Istanbul and the central institutions and do all kinds of things about it. Uh, And then similarly, uh, the Balkans, etc. So it's only in the last uh, 20 years or so we have a new generation of historians now who are uh, much more aware of these uh, ties uh, that really. Needs to be uh, taken into consideration, even though this was a decentralized. This was still part of an empire. So I think that is, that is um, uh, that is something to keep in mind when you think. Yeah,
0: about I, I find it to be such a fat. I mean, this is a question we get all the time as Africa. Yeah. We we hear things like, why why did you choose to um, to focus on the Arab world as opposed to the Middle East or as yeah. opposed to anything, right? Um, and in the end of the day, it's an arbitrary decision and it's just a preference um, for the stuff that we want to focus on. But I don't think I've ever heard, um, or maybe not ever, but I don't hear the term, the former Ottoman, you know, uh, uh, the sort of, the na- the area of the former Ottoman Empire as a a useful demarcation of a group of people. Um, yes. And it's, it's interesting that like, you know, if I grew up uh, surrounded by um, Arabs and people from the former Yugoslavian Republic. Um, and so a lot of folks from the Balkans and a lot of folks from the Arab world, um, and culturally we clicked perfectly. Um, mm-hmm. And I never once thought to myself, well, you know, we were all part of the same empire once upon a time. Um, is there something to that or it's just we're geographically close and it doesn't matter? Um,
1: i think i think there is i think that's an important observation i think there is there are a lot of reasons for this and we can you know there are different ways of thinking about it but one aspect of it um so um when i said that this is you know this was uh, considering the fact that this is an empire that existed for a long time etc uh it was relatively uh, light-handed in its dealings with uh, different uh, Communities and parts is a huge geography. Um, uh, so many, you know, non-Muslim religions survived uh, throughout this period and, and continued to practice, etc. Uh, but at the same time, and I think there's some truth to this. Uh, and and some of my colleagues that come from the, you know, the Arab side of this historical profession are bring this, bring this, bringing this up. Uh, I think, in a forceful way, I think there's some truth to it and and that is the fact that this was uh, this was an empire basically so there mm-hmm. is there is an underlying power relationship uh, it was uh, you know there was a center uh, and center had its priorities, and they really imposed those priorities so the give and take with the provinces really premised upon. Uh, the assumption that the interests of the center would be served. Now, I think this became even more problematic in the 19th century, because as the empire was trying to sort of centralize and copy some of Western practices in terms of creating state institutions, uh, they also, I think, uh, they were influenced by some of the um, what was becoming in, in Europe at the time, uh, imperialist uh, culturally sort of uh, you know I mean colonial mentalities uh, uh, that they were uh, that we seeing the Europeans um, have in relationship to their colonies so in other words uh, I think uh, the Ottoman Empire became uh, at that time its relationship with some of its provinces became problematic because these were these become As the empire was becoming centralized, they become more and more uh, really the subordinate dependent subservient sort of uh, service seen as such uh, By the center. And I think that kind of relationship. So it wasn't really, I think it would be unfair to think about this as a one very happy family that Mm -hmm. existed For 600 years in the common space. Uh, there were some periods, maybe it was closer to that, but overall, um, uh, the the power relationship, I think, is important to keep in mind. And this was, as I said, uh, an empire that somehow managed to survive for 600 years. Uh, and that force, I think, was an important part of it. And, of course, yeah. as we all know, it became increasingly more problematic within the context of 19, course 2020..: yeah. century.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, there are a lot of questions in the chat. So okay. we're going to do our little quick fire question um, before we get into stuff. So um, I'll try to keep you uh, to keep these quick. Um, so the first question is, what are you reading or watching right now?
1: All right so uh reading I'm reading a number of things at the same time uh, uh this is uh <coughs> you know I've been living in the United States now for a very long time and all of us who're living in the United States are are really fascinated if that's the word to see how uh this uh country its institutions are unraveling very fastly and and it is really, I think it is really incumbent upon us to try and understand what's going on. So I've been reading uh, a recent book I read uh, is, is Jill Lepore's uh, These Words, uh, and that is really a 800 page history of the United States, but really it shows um, how race, uh, from the very, very beginning, uh, was there as an unresolved important issue that really conditions, has conditioned everything that's going on in this country. So it's a fascinating book that helps me quite a bit. Along the Great. same lines, but from my own profession, I read uh, In God's Shadow, Alan Mikhail book about uh, Selim I, Uh, And really, an interesting take about the European relations with the Ottoman Empire in the 16th century. Uh, I read fiction, also. Um, I read uh, Otessa Mushfag's "My Year of Rest of uh, Rest and Relaxation," Uh, and that Mm. is uh, that. Really, I mean, I try to read fiction that really take take me away from what I do uh, in my professional life. Uh, and that, that's a good one. In terms of okay. watching, um, I, I'm re- I'm watching this Danish um, uh, series called Uh, Borgen. uh It's uh, it's again a um, it's, it's it's really it's done very well. Uh, it really it it is about politics in Denmark, but really makes you to think about this relationship Great. between executive and the press, etc. Yeah.
0: Okay. Cool. Great. Um, a lot of good stuff there. Um, okay. Uh, Who would you love to shadow for a day, past or present?
1: Uh, I have, uh, I just, rather than talking about one person, I just want to say the group, and I'm not going to identify them. These are the group of sort of people, the very end of the empire, and they're referred to as young Turks, and then Ataturk Mustafa Kemal came out of that group. Uh, I'm really fascinated thinking about uh, these people trying to really um, not only understand what was going on, but to shape it in some ways. And yeah. a lot of them failed, some succeeded, some fell into opposition, but really um, uh, that, that would be really fascinating.
0: Fantastic. Um, what do people most misunderstand about your work?
1: Uh, you know, um, uh, two things, uh, when, uh, when we, when we were kind of thinking about this whole, uh, the, the empire, et cetera, um, it, it is really sometimes that can come across as, as really, um, having a certain kind of attitude about modern Turkey, uh, too critical, maybe, uh, you know, not really appreciative enough uh, if you want to think about it that way. Uh, And in the same way, uh, when uh, when I wrote about modernity and modern identities, and that was somehow sometimes interpreted as being too kind of um, uh, supportive of the whole modernization project without really being critical about it enough. So I think it is uh being trying to i mean sometimes you're you you're trying. they try to force you into this either side of this divide uh everything is polarized now and i think to um, that i think is something um that sometimes bothers me
0: okay great um and last question um whose work do you admire or are inspired by
1: uh Just, uh, you know, in terms of uh, these uh, historians who wrote really big books and and forced me to think about the world in in, in new ways, I want to mention Eric Hobsbawm and E.P. Thompson for different reasons, uh, but they really are uh, extraordinarily um, suggestive in their writings, in terms of uh, how we think about the world. In terms of uh, Turkish history, Ottoman history, uh, I think one of the most important uh, people. Uh, I I'm mentioned uh, Sherif Mardin. He's uh, a political scientist, but more of a sociologist. Wrote about culture in the 1960s and 70s. Into actually, I mean, passed away just a few years ago. Uh, but really, in, in, in when I look back at his work, um, it's really um, it, it's it's very, um, way ahead of its time. Um,
0: cool. Great. OK, we have so many questions in the chat. So um, we are going to open up to everybody. So the order of the questions are um, Sara, Crystal, uh, Lutf, Sam, Osman, and then Marianne. So please keep your questions short. And Rasat, I'm going to try to ask you to keep your questions short as well. Uh, your answers okay. short as well. Um, okay. Sara?
2: Um, thank you very much for receiving my question. I'm going to try to be concise. I'm, a, I'm Syrian and I live in Brazil. Here, uh, the Syrian Lebanese community are referred to generally, amongst a lot of things, a lot of other things, as Turcos, and um, uh, this makes sense, of course, given much of the immigration has uh, taken place on, in the early to late 19th century, uh, and have, of course, a lot of them had Ottoman uh, travel documents, um, Uh, very very, very little is known about the region today other than the fact that they came from the Ottoman Empire. But what is definitely known about this group of people here is that they are white racially in Brazil, Syrian, Lebanese, Turcos are whites. And what I wanted to know uh, and what I'm curious about is what is it that facilitated or that could have facilitated this whitening process through which this immigrant community got consolidated in Brazil as they arrived? Uh, and which was very, very detrimental in the construction of what is called today racial democracy, which is a very, very oppressive ideology, uh, racial ideology in, in Brazilian structure. Or what are or more specifically about racial di- dynamics uh, in the uh, towards the end of the Ottoman Empire? Thank you.
1: This is a very good question. I, I'm not sure if I can really um... Answer to your satisfaction, because a lot of what I think has to do with Brazilian history. Uh, from little I know, this may have to do more with uh, with uh, the power structure in Brazil uh, being keen on intent on on, um, on maintaining the indigenous racial hierarchies intact and making sure. Uh, to the extent that's possible, the immigration that happened in the 19th century, in the 20th century, did not disrupt that. And somehow, uh, and especially, uh, I think that has something to do with it. So uh, just just to give you, I mean, this is uh, can be a very long conversation, but ironically, um, uh, there were at least several instances when I was a student uh, in New York um people um, just wanted to assume that I was just by virtue of coming from a poor or underdeveloped country that I should be a person of color uh, in those kinds of conversations. So I think it is. it has a lot of these have to do with local dynamics and local structures. And I don't think it is really the Ottoman late Ottoman hierarchies are very, 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 very different. And I don't think that really, I don't know if there is a direct relationship with that, but I think this is a very good question.
0: Thanks. Sarah. Okay. Uh, Crystal.
1: Hello.
3: Merhaba. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask, essentially, uh, to keep it short, what is part of what would you identify Turkish um, people under and that's a complex question as far as they are they Arab? Are they Anto I can't say right, Anatolian? Um and where do they also fit in, in like the Swana identity? Because you know part of it's like split in Europe <laughs> so i'm just curious
1: which I, um, what identity i'm sorry i didn't hear that which identity yeah,
3: is that? it's okay um like what what identity is do i guess turkish people fall under is it anatolian is it arab like what like what what is it in the swana identity um especially since turkey's like kind of cut in half that's all
1: <laughs> yes uh, it's um uh, you know, I mean, I think the best way of thinking about this is in terms of language, it's a distinct language, Turkish language, people who speak Turkish are very different from people who speak Arabic and historical dynamics, how, where they originated, how they came from, um, it's a its a fairly well known history, but origins of it is somehow mixed up, but it is not uh, So I think it is safe to think of, you know, some kind of an ethnic identity, but when you look at it closely, you also realize that there are a lot of overlaps and crosses. So, so I don't think it's useful to think about it as if it is a category that is unchanging, it's completely separate and insular, Uh, but in terms of culture, language, et cetera, uh, it uh, it is a distinct group. I think that's, that's a good way of thinking about it. Lotof, you ready? Yes, hello. Uh, thank you, Dr. Kasaba and Mikey and Afikra for another interesting talk. Uh, Dr. Kasaba... Can you raise your
0: voice just a little bit? Sorry. Yes.
1: Can you hear me better now?
0: Yes. Yeah.
3: Okay. Uh,
1: Dr. Kasaba, at the beginning of your uh, of the chat, you mentioned that uh, you were encouraged to leave behind uh, the part that is your past uh, being a part of the Ottoman Empire if I understood
2: you well. So mm-hmm. I'm really curious to know why that is so, although the Ottoman Empire had a really great impact or influence on the whole world for five or six centuries.
1: Mm-hmm. I think uh, this is why um, uh, one of uh, you know Mikey's uh, quick questions at the end, I said I want to kind of uh, shadow these people at the very end of the empire. Uh, it is. Uh, you know, it was a, the whole movement, the transition from the empire to Turkish Republic ended up being dominated by uh, Mustafa Kemal, who later became Atatürk, uh, who, you know, was a very skillful politician, but he had some very strong ideas about uh, what this new country should look like and what direction yes. it should take. Uh, and uh, you know uh, why that happened and how it happened these are all kind of really subjects for very long conversations but i think he dominated that transition and one of the one of the um, decisions that he and his close friends were, uh, their, his close friends made at the time was to really break this institute introduce this radical break with the Ottoman empire and ensure that the new country becomes Almost exclusively oriented uh, towards the West, towards Europe. So there was a, a deliberate uh, policy of cutting those uh, mm. those links with the um, recent history. And just very quickly, and the reason, in their mind, I think the whole collapse of the empire, World War One, etc., uh, were extraordinarily destructive, and they all had to do this. Uh, some Ottoman institutions and the way the Ottoman Empire was trying to deal with those uh, in the 19th century. All right, thank you very Great. much.
0: thanks so much for your question. Um, Sam, you're up next. Thank you, Professor. Uh, this was interesting. I, I think you may have started to answer my question in the previous question answer, uh, but I, I was interested in knowing your, your take on Turkish politics Although you said growing up, uh, the Ottoman Empire was a past history, but do you feel that maybe some of the motivation of Turkish politics today has a mindset of wanting to reinstate some of that influence?
1: Yes. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, Short answer, yes. Way, uh, yes. <laughs> well, I think it is. Uh, but again, just like uh, I mentioned, is someone that's very strong opinions about how Turkey should move, should etc., in, in Erdogan, President Erdogan, we have another very strong uh, leader who has his own ideas about uh, what Turkey should be and, and how its relations should be with its neighborhood, with the Middle East. And part of it does look like re, you know, the elements of reestablishing the Ottoman Empire. I honestly am not sure um, uh, how um, uh, detailed a vision this is in terms of the Ottoman Empire part of it, uh, but I think uh, I think there is there is that uh, it does look like that Turkey is a lot more active now all over the region, uh, the Caucasus, Syria, Iraq, Libya, et cetera. Uh, But, uh, and I must also say that some of this now in Turkey has to do with uh, what's going on within the country, uh, domestic politics of Turkey, and this is one way of deflecting, I think, the tension from some of the difficulties, domestic difficulties, and think about this regional um, uh, vision.
0: Great. Thanks, Sam. Great question. Um, we have two last questions, one from Usman and then one from Marianne. Usman?
1: Hello, yeah. can you hear me?
0: Yep, got you.
1: Um, so my question, Professor is about the 19th century. So in sort of the mid to late 19th century, the Ottoman Empire itself faced a large refugee crisis, we can say, where you had people pouring across into the empire from former territories across Central and Eastern Europe and other places, and I wanted to know what do you think was the impact of having all of these refugees come into the Ottoman Empire and the earlier Turkish Republic, because I think the Ottomans were even the first country to have a ministry dedicated to refugees. So I'm sort of wondering what the wider impact of all of that was. it starts really uh, mid 19th century. I think Crimean War is the first uh, first uh, big kind of increase, the first big wave of refugees. Uh, it has, uh, it has, had, it had two, uh, I think, uh, two kinds of uh, effect in what was going on in the empire in the 19th century. One has to do with identity. Um, and in a way, uh, these people were all either pushed out and they, they chose to leave. Uh, primarily because they were, they were Muslims. Uh, they were pushed away by primarily Russia at the time and other powers. So, it, so they were coming to seek refuge uh, in the empire. Uh, so dealing with this uh, increasing ways of people, I think that really um, created that's the second effect. Uh, and that was uh, institutions to, to somehow uh, monitor them, settle them, manage them, it had a very important effect in the creation of some of the early uh, state institutions uh, in, in in the empire in the 19th century. Uh, so um, and it is you know uh, it had uh, over the the rest of the century. Of course, it had um, it had a um, uh, it had really it had the effect of of changing. Uh, the uh, religious ethnic composition of the empire in in different parts of the world. It became part of this almost like this ethnic engineering as we move into the late 19th century, uh, settling them in in areas and then creating new synergies and new communities. Uh, So it's a very interesting story.
0: Great, thanks so much. Marianne, you'll be our last question um, and then we will sign off.
1: Can you hear me? Okay,
3: um, I'm. Uh, thank you for uh, your talk. It's been really interesting. And I uh, have been trying to follow the, the tracings of the diaspora out of the Mount Lebanon region. And of course, like what everybody has been uh, saying, they're often identified the people are often identified as turks is there a way to backtrack is there an archive or a a source that can um, kind of unravel the identities the cultural identities of people now so that i can at least get closer to what i'm hoping to find which is uh, more the narratives that are aligned with those cultural ties
1: um you know uh only I only know this second hand and third hand other people's work uh but uh, two two sources uh, appeared well I should say three maybe uh family archives are 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 turning out to be very interesting. It's something that i i hope to to do as well for my own family, so that is kind of that is one. Uh, depending on you know the family the network etc. But that is uh, that is one 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 source that people are using. The second is the uh, the the religious documents the church records etc. And that's related to that uh, the missionaries uh, uh, who were all over the Middle East at the time American missionaries Protestant missionaries their archives and documents uh, are very rich. Uh, most of them are in the United States and 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 then thirdly specifically about the Armenians of course the orphanages that were set up um, in Syria and Lebanon uh, and those uh, are also uh, are turning out to be an interesting source uh, in some some research Uh, unfortunately because the origins of this wave occurred at a time that was really um, you know almost continuous war and destruction uh many of these are very hard to locate uh, but those uh i find uh, i mean they're not really they don't give you a sense of a whole community or a way of migrants, uh, but especially family archives are are turning out to be very interesting stories about um about uh, what people uh, had to do uh, uh, to to survive that period thank you.
0: Great. Thanks so much. Um, thanks, Marianne. Thanks to everybody. Um, Professor uh, Kasaba, thank you so much for joining us. This was really an honor to speak to you. And uh, you. it's also a treat for us to be able to think about this from a, an Ottoman perspective and sort of broaden our horizon. So I hope you enjoyed being on the on the series. Um,
1: this is a really, thank you very much. And thank you for all the questions. And thank you for the very good work you're doing. Thank
0: you. Thanks so much. Have a nice day, evening, afternoon, wherever you are. And thanks so much for all the questions. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. We have new episodes coming every single week. Make sure you follow us on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. You can find us at alficra.com for information about all upcoming events. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot. See you next time and stay curious.